I welcome you on this fourth Sunday of Advent. It's a delight to have you with us, and I want to wish you Merry Christmas. May this be a very special week for you and your family as you celebrate the birthday of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we could look at one verse that explains three mysteries, would you be interested? And if that one verse explained those mysteries hundreds of years before they happened, would you be even more interested? And if these mysteries are all central truths of the Christian faith, would that raise your interest even higher? Well, I think the answer for all of us would be yes. And the verse that I want us to see this morning that explains those three mysteries is Zechariah 13, verse 7. Now, Zechariah is an easy book for you to find in your Bibles. It's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. And I encourage you to turn there to chapter 13, and I want us to look at this prophecy this morning. I want to bring a message entitled, A Prophecy That Explains Three Mysteries. And listen to what the prophet Zechariah says in verse 7 of chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now Jesus quoted this verse as fulfilled in himself, and it greatly influenced his understanding of his own role as the Messiah, perhaps as much as any Old Testament passage. And this verse answers three very important mysteries about our Christian faith. The first one is the mystery of who Jesus is. The mystery of who Jesus is. And in this verse, we learn his identity <clears throat> and we learn his ministry. So let's look at his identity first. His identity is the God-man, the God-man. Jesus was the most important and unique person who ever lived, and he claimed to be the God-man. His claim was treated as outrageous by the Jews of his day, though it should not have been. Because almost 500 years before Christ was born, Zechariah prophesied exactly who he would be right here. You will notice that verse 7 clearly identifies the shepherd here as a man. And this is the first side of Jesus' nature. He was fully and truly man. But then I want you to notice in the next line, the Lord of hosts calls him the one who stands next to me. The one who stands next to me. Now, in the original Hebrew language, that is actually only one word. And wherever it is used in the rest of the Old Testament, it refers to a near relative who had equality with the one speaking. So the person being referred to had equality with the one speaking. So notice here what the Lord of hosts then is claiming. He's claiming identity of nature or unity of essence with this man. 
Now, I think you realize, as I do, as I look at this prophecy, that this lifts Jesus then up beyond the level of just a man. It means that he also has the divine nature. Do you know, if you would go to John chapter 10, you would discover that Jesus taught that marvelous truth, I am the good shepherd. And as he was talking about being the good shepherd, he said in John 10, I and the Father are one, meaning one in essence and one in nature. He meant that he and the Father were of the same divine nature. You see, knowing this prophecy that was spoken of him as God's shepherd, the Lord Jesus echoed it. So just put these two together. Put them together and see the prophecy and the fulfillment. The good shepherd and the father are one, John 10. And here in Zechariah 13, 7, my shepherd who stands next to me. You see, Jesus was claiming what Zechariah said would be true. He would be the God-man. Jesus did not claim anything that was new. He only claimed what was foretold of him and he perfectly fulfilled in his life and ministry. Well, now that's his identity. The identity is the God-man. But Zechariah also here prophesied his ministry. And his ministry would be the shepherd king. The shepherd king. When we think of a shepherd, we uh, probably only imagine a sheep herder and his sheep, and we've seen that image many, many times. But in the ancient world, a shepherd was also a title for kings. I want you to listen to two very familiar passages in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 8. This is what the Lord said to David. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. And then that familiar passage, Micah 5, 2, which we have seen many times during the Christmas season, where Micah says, out of Bethlehem will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And there we see the pattern for Jesus' ministry is the pattern of the shepherd king. In fact, do you know this was the favorite picture that Jesus used of his ministry? Many years ago, a pastor by the name of Charles Jefferson wrote a book entitled The Minister as Shepherd. And I want you to listen to what he said that Jesus loved to refer to himself as. Pastor Jefferson said this, Jesus never called himself a priest or a preacher or a rector or a clergyman or a bishop or an elder, but he liked to think of himself as a shepherd. The shepherd idea was often in his mind. Jesus had many metaphors by which to image forth his character and his office, but the metaphor by which he loved best to paint his portrait was shepherd. 
So when we as believers today say he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords, what kind of king is he? Well, he is a king who rules his people by shepherding us. That's the kind of king that he is. You know, as you think about seeing a flock of sheep, which I'm sure perhaps you've seen in the countryside, you've certainly seen it in pictures or on television, what comes to your mind when you think of the image of a flock of sheep? Well, for me, it's total helplessness, absolute neediness. And what a shepherd does with helpless and needy sheep is he meets their needs. But think about Jesus now. As the God-man, he is the greatest shepherd of all. And therefore, as a shepherd who meets needs, the Bible should clearly teach us that he meets our deepest needs. Sometime I would encourage you to do a, a little Bible study. Go to John chapter 10, where Jesus speaks about himself as the good shepherd. And there he says, I and my father are one. And then think through the deepest needs that you have. And then look through the verses in John 10 and see one by one how Jesus meets your deepest needs. Uh, let me do that Bible study for you here this morning, and then you can do it on your own sometime with your own Bible. Here are our deepest needs. Let me share them for you. Intimate, personal relationship. And what does Jesus say about himself in John 10? Well, in verse 3, he calls us by name. And then we have the need for clear direction in life. And Jesus says in verse 3 that he leads us out. We also have the need for freedom from life's worries. And in verse 7, Jesus says he's the door. He's the one who protects us in the sheep pen so that we can be free from the worries of our lives. Well, then we need freedom from sin's penalties. And in verse 9, Jesus says, whoever enters will be saved. We also have the need of knowing exactly what is true and what is right. In verse 9, Jesus said, we will find pasture, a clear image of feeding and teaching. And then we have the need of a life that is full of meaning and purpose. And in verse 10, Jesus says, we may have abundant life. We also have the need of someone who will sacrifice for us. And in verse 15, Jesus says he gives his life for the sheep. We also have the need of somebody who will always stand by us no matter what. And verse 13, Jesus says he cares for the sheep. And then we have this need of knowing what the future holds, of having certainty that we will have eternal life. And in verse 28, Jesus says, we will never perish. Do you know how many needs I have just enumerated that are the deepest needs of our life? Nine of them. Nine of them. And Jesus Christ, as the shepherd king, is able to meet them all. If I asked a physician, how would your patients do if all nine of these needs were met in their life? 
I think that physician would say, if these needs could be met in the life of my patients, most of them, many of them, could be well. You see, Jesus does not promise an easy life. Far from it. It's not an easy life following a crucified and rejected Messiah. But he does promise this. He will meet our deepest needs as we go through life with him. You see, this prophecy answers the question about the mystery of who Jesus is. Well, now I want you to notice there's a second mystery here that is also answered, and is the mystery of who killed Jesus. The mystery of who killed Jesus. If I were to ask you this morning, who killed Jesus, how would you answer? Well, I can see somebody raising their hand and saying, well, the Jews killed Jesus. And of course, that would be true. They turned him over to Pilate. Somebody else would maybe raise their hand and say, well, the Romans killed Jesus. And of course, that would be true as well, because Pilate hung him on a cross. And then I could raise my hand this morning and say, I killed Jesus because it was my sins that put him on the cross. All of those answers are true. But you know the first answer the Bible gives is that God killed Jesus. That's the first answer the Bible gives. When Zechariah says here, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, that is a figure of speech known as apostrophe. An apostrophe is a direct address to an impersonal object as though that object were a person. So God here is addressing himself as the sword who strikes his own shepherd. Awake, O sword, God says to himself, and against my shepherd. God is addressing himself as the one who strikes his own shepherd. Now, this is an amazing, amazing statement. Because what it tells us is that God originated the plan to kill Jesus. The sword was in the hands of the Romans, yet the Bible very clearly says they did what God had planned. If we were to ask ourselves this question, why did the Jews kill Jesus? Well, Pilate said it was because they were jealous and they were guilty, weren't they? And then if we say, well, why did Pilate kill Jesus? Well, the Bible's pretty clear. He was afraid of the Jews and the report they would give to the Romans. And then if we ask, why did we kill Jesus? Well, the answer's pretty clear. It's our sins. And of course, Pilate was guilty. The Jews were guilty. And we are guilty. But then if we ask this question, why did God kill Jesus? What's the answer to that? Well, I want you to listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, and listen to what the beloved apostle says is the answer to that question. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction for our sins. What's the answer here to this question? 
of why did God kill Jesus? The answer is because of love. And that's why this fourth Sunday of Advent is the theme of love because the answer to the question of who killed Jesus is primarily God did. And he did because of love. Well, there's one final answer to this mystery in this passage that is answered. And it is this mystery. The mystery of why the Jews reject their Messiah. The mystery of why the Jews reject their Messiah. Now, you know that there are some Jews who have accepted Jesus. We call them Messianic Jews. And we call them Messianic Jews because they believe that Jesus is their Messiah, and they call him Yeshua, our Messiah. But the vast majority... The Jews as a nation have rejected their Messiah. And we just have to ask the question, why such hostility from God's own people, the Jews? I'm sure you've wondered that. I'll never forget when I was in high school, I had a friend one day who had a hat on with a button on it. And the button said, Jesus saves. And a Jewish friend of mine, whom I care for very much, went up to this friend of mine and very sarcastically said to him, what does Jesus save, beer cans? And you just recoil at that. Why such hostility to Jesus from his own people? Well, Jesus quoted verse 7 here when the disciples fled at his arrest. You can find those quotations in Matthew 26, 31, Mark 14, 27, Matthew 26, 56, and Mark 14, 50. But the last line here that follows, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, goes beyond the scattering of the twelve. Listen to the last line. I will turn my hand against the little ones. God is speaking here. And he says, I will turn my hand against the little ones after the shepherd is struck by the sword and the sheep are scattered. Now the little ones here are the descendants of that generation that killed Jesus. And for God's hand to be against them is an expression of opposition or judgment on the part of God to the coming generations of the Jewish people for their rejection of their Messiah. We know that this happened in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jews to the far corners of the earth. Do you know to this very day only 45% of Jews live in their homeland of Israel? 55% of all Jews are still scattered throughout the earth. And we ask this question, why did they and why have the majority rejected their Messiah? Well, this passage gives the answer. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. A dead shepherd scatters sheep. A dead shepherd scatters sheep.
Listen to a comment that my professor, Walt Kaiser, makes about this, because I think it helps us understand so much what Zechariah was prophesying. Listen to what he says. As a result of Messiah's death, the sheep were scattered. This act of dying was too much to accept for any Jewish contemporary view of the Messiah. The cross would continue to be an offense as long as the Gentile period lasted. That God would kill his own Messiah was inconceivable and an offense. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, We preach Christ crucified to the Jew a stumbling block. To this very day, a dead shepherd offends Jews who reject God's plan. I remember a number of years ago, I had a conversation with a Messianic Jew who lives here in the Upper Peninsula. And this is what she said to me. She said, my Jewish grandmother is dying and she is afraid to die. She said to me, she has a balance the scales approach to life, that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then God will accept you. But of course, the question that comes is, how can you know if you've done enough good? There's always that bit of doubt, have I done enough good, that the scale balances on the good side? And here's what this Messianic Jew said to me. She said, I have the answer as to why my grandmother is afraid to die. I hope that she will let me pray with her. But we have this question this morning. Will the Jews ever recognize their Messiah? Will they ever receive him as a nation? And do you know Zechariah says wonderfully yes as he continues in this prophecy? Look at verse 8 and notice what he says. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refires silver and test them as gold is tested. Read the book of Revelation. That's the testing and the refining that is one day coming to the people of God in the end times. And then notice what Zechariah says. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. And when will that be? Well, look back at Zechariah 12 and verse 10, and notice what the prophet says as he looks into the future. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. 
Do you know this is the day when Jesus returns, prophesied for us in the Old Testament, culminating in the book of Revelation, where we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And Romans 11:25 says about the answers to when the Jews will accept the Lord at his coming, this is a mystery until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. God has set aside his own people. It's a mystery so that he can extend grace to you and me that we might come to know this shepherd king who is the God-man. And reflecting upon this, Romans 11 verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Think about it with me this morning. 500 years before Christ, God laid it all out for us in one verse. The mystery of who Jesus is. The mystery of who killed Jesus. And the mystery of why his own people have rejected their Messiah. What a great and glorious God that he would explain this for us that we might have that wonderful relationship with him as our Lord and Savior until that day in which he fulfills his plan for his Old Testament people. Let's take a moment, shall we, and bow together. And as we think of this week and the wonder of Christmas and celebrating who he is, let's celebrate him with great meaning and understanding, rejoicing and joy over what he means to us. Let's pray for just a moment. As we bow our heads in prayer and close our eyes, if you're here today and, and you're not sure you're a part of God's plan, whether you be Jew or Gentile, you can be. Just like that Messianic Jewish friend of mine who shared with me about her own family. She knows the Lord Jesus and she has the answer to what happens to those who trust him when they die. And she has the peace of eternal life because she knows the Good Shepherd personally. And she would say to us, Yeshua is the Messiah and I have found him as my Lord and Savior. And you can do the same. If you will repent of your sins and turn from your own way and in simple faith and trust cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord, he can become your shepherd king. And all of those nine deepest needs that he promised to meet in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd, he can begin to meet in your life. Not that he promises you an easy life, but he promises that he will meet those needs as he takes you through life. And so would you turn to him now and trust him. What a great Christmas this could be and how you could know him personally as your Lord and Savior. And once again, if we can help in any way here at Bethel Baptist Church in Marquette, Michigan, please contact us. Our website is BethelMarquette.com and we would love to hear from you and assist you in your walk with the Lord. Lord Jesus, now we praise you on this fourth Advent, a uh, week of Advent, that in love you came for us. And the Bible reminds us, not that we loved you, but that you love us. 
and your Father sent you that you might be the satisfaction for our sins. How we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.